With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events, and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 92nd episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. Then, You'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. Thank you to all my listeners throughout the world. I sincerely do appreciate you. And thank you for listening and sending all your messages. I love getting your messages. And I certainly do hope that you're all doing well during um, these somewhat difficult times that we're still going through. My October Privacy Professor Tips message was published on September 29th. Please sign up for them. I've provided them for free since 2005, and I've done this in an effort to increase general awareness of data and cybersecurity and privacy issues, but also to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send to their employees. I know that awareness and training never, hardly ever, gets enough budget. So, you know, I hope this is helping you with that. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. And hey, guess what? We are now also providing free ebooks and flipbooks, digital flipbooks, and awareness videos through our privacysecuritybrainiacs.com site. Get them from there and sign up for notifications about those from privacysecuritybrainiacs.com. And now I'm really excited to announce that after we published our three-volume set of digital flipbooks in honor of Grandparents' Day in September, they were collectively titled Cybersecurity for Grandparents, and we had one on credit reports, one on device updates, and one on social media. We now have printed it as one hard copy paperback book at just around 60 pages in large print font. And we did this after publishing those digital flipbooks. We were pleasantly surprised to receive many requests from individuals along with some long-term care centers and hospitals and other types of businesses, and they asked us if we had hard copies because they wanted to get hard copies to give to their residents and patients and customers, as well as to family and friends. And we were somewhat stunned, but completely excited. So now, available on Amazon we have this hard copy uh, bound three-volume set of topics in one book. And after we did this, now we plan to publish a new set of similar types of advice books each quarter, covering three topics of current security and privacy concerns. So please give them a look. You can go to Amazon, just do a search for Rebecca Harold, and look for my newest book, and you'll see it come up at the top of the list. 
Well, those of you who are regular listeners of my show know that I started my career as a systems engineer. And not only did I do a lot of software engineering and development, but I also created the network change control system at a large multinational Fortune 200 corporation as my it was my first um, project, and I spent a lot of time making sure I got that right. And ever since that time, I've been very you know, diligent on making sure that software is developed securely. And I've been concerned and, quite frankly, disappointed over the past 10 to 15 years to see the tech industry often going backwards in many ways instead of forward with respect to how software is developed, engineered, and put into production with many vulnerabilities and bugs that ultimately have resulted in in thousands. We see them every day, new incidents and breaches. And um You know, a lot of times those are a result of vulnerable, wholly buggy software. And those in leadership at many tech firms, including software as a service or often called SaaS, online services business, I'm, I frankly, I'm puzzled. They seem to shrug off these problems, oftentimes, not all of them, but many of them. Case in point, Just a couple of years ago, the co-owner of a SaaS security services business, he expressed to me his firm belief that change control management was not necessary for SaaS software. And yeah, mind-boggling, right? It boggled my mind. And so he had his developers making changes directly in the production region. His customers were constantly experiencing problems, most as a result of bad software change control practices. But then he claimed that, well, everyone expected such problems with SaaS software, so it was no big deal. Now, he was not from a tech background, Um, his background was in sales and marketing. And I'd love to know how many tech business owners and CEOs and decision makers don't have expertise or not even expertise, at least understanding about the need for building secure software and for doing so following a secure software development and change control process. And Building that in, engineering it into your systems. If the ongoing plague of security incidents and privacy breaches occurring through software vulnerabilities is any indication, uh, it may be a large percentage of those business leaders who just simply don't have you know, that background or knowledge at least uh, to realize how important that is. So we need to discuss this more. And it's been too long since I've discussed this on the show. So today, we are going to speak about the critical need for secure software engineering, development, and testing, and the need to follow stringent software development practices to stem this consistent digital hemorrhaging of of security incidents and privacy breaches. And I'm so happy to have on my show today one of the leading experts for this topic, Dr. Rhonda Farrell. Dr. Rhonda Farrell is the founder of CSTGIA, a partnership of over 50 organizations providing cybersecurity awareness, education, apprenticeships, and elevation opportunities for girls, youth, women, and veterans. Dr. Farrell is also the chair of the ASQ Innovation TC, and she co-founded the ISSA Women in Security Group 
to build community and offer recognition and advancement opportunities for the myriad of women subject matter experts and leaders internationally. Rhonda is also active in cyber and privacy working groups and has contributed to the DOD CIO body of knowledge on digital modernization cloud strategy and the Department of Defense Enterprise DevSecOps reference design, as well as being a contributing author for multiple books. Her career has spanned over 30 years, and she has served the United States Marine Corps all the way through Fortune 500 organizations, state, civil, and other federal government agencies. See more about Dr. Rhonda Farrell in her bio on my Voice America show site and connect with her at linkedin.com backslash in backslash Rhonda Farrell. Rhonda, thank you so much for taking time out of what I know is your very busy schedule to be a guest on my show today. Welcome to my show. Thank you so much, Rebecca Harold, for having me as your guest speaker today. I'm so glad to be able to share cybersecurity and privacy best practices and the way forward with your global community. Well, I know that we're going to learn a lot, and I look forward to learning a lot, too. And But let's start first. You have earned many, many certifications, including a couple that are directly applicable to our topic today. So these include Certified Secure Software Lifecycle Professional, or CSSLP, from the ISC Squared, and Certified Software Quality Engineer, or CSQE, from the ASQ. Can you please provide our listeners with just a brief overview of what those certifications mean? Thank you. I, I think they really supply the groundwork for understanding the principles of the software development life cycle and the various methods that one can use to determine where the greatest amount of risk of defects are. They reinforce the importance of design assurance activities to find and eradicate defects as early in the life cycle as possible and really enable a deeper understanding of forecasting rates of defects so that engineers and PMs can better scope the life cycle activities, be they agile or rapid or old school waterfall method approaches. The CSSLP really takes that to the next level, focusing primarily on the security aspects across the SDLC versus just generic defects during that time period between 2003 and 2008. Security issues were still being lumped into a quality defect construct and had not yet had performance metrics measurements and separate KPIs built out to measure them. So similar to the CSQE, the CSSLP allows practitioners to look at the overall conceptual life cycle and ascertain where to apply people, process, and technology investments to get the best security assurance and compliance outcomes. Well, it would be nice if everybody who created software would would have to at least take the classes to prepare for those types of uh, certifications, I think, because we do have, as you you know probably heard in the intro, we have so many. Uh, problems going on. But, you know, I'm curious before we get into some of those issues, I got started with my change control system for two reasons. One, because I was told to do it. And number two, it was because nobody else wanted to do it. (laughs) But I'm glad that they asked me to do that because it really did steer me in the direction of security. Now, I'm curious, how did you get interested in secure software development? Thank you. I think secure software development is just a natural progression as the industry moved to make cybersecurity a specialty functional area in the late 1980s and early 1990s. 
we see that ISC squared and the CISSP really started out as an ANSI-IEC standard in 1994, taking over 10 years for it to mature and be recognized by the DOD as a valid 8570 certification requirement. This is really followed following a secure systems engineer focus in commercial state government, and I'm sure federal government at that time, where we need to be focused on the integrated quality level of the products and the services that manufacturers and service providers were fielding. I personally had a chance to be part of very mature Fortune 100 companies during that time with phenomenal quality system, Lean Six Sigma, ISO 9000 maturation initiatives, ensuring that their products and services met a high design assurance threshold before they shipped to their customer base. Wow, that would have been great. I mean, at that point in time, I started my career and working on a change control system around 1988. So, you know, that was kind of exciting times, wasn't it? Late 80s, early 90s, when there were no uh, widespread requirements. So uh, a lot of times you learn by bumps and bruises um, from things going wrong, the reason why you needed that. Now, I'm wondering, um, you were in the United States Marine Corps. Did that lend itself or contribute to your success in building secure software? Completely. So the United States Marine Corps really grounded me in computer operations and architecture principles. We were actually working with Omdahl mainframes that were compliant with System 360 architectures. Mm. And that turned into career of design and security assurance work across System 370, System 390 architecture, storage, telecommunications, and many enterprise technologies. You can say the United States Marine Corps was the seminal turning and pivot point in my professional life. Security was truly baked into the application suite, into the mainframe technologies. And we worked very hard to ensure that security features and functionalities met the high quality bar that was required by our quality management overlays, such as Malcolm Baldridge Performance Excellence, ISO 9000, Six Sigma, and Lean Six Sigma methodologies. Well, that uh, certainly did lay a very good foundation for your path going forward, it sounds like. Now, I'm wondering, um, let's start talking about some of the software vulnerabilities and where, where they're created. Because, you know, as I mentioned at the intro, it just seems like uh, the way that coding and development is currently being used, um, it, it often lacks structure or there's misunderstanding about different types of coding and development methods. And I'm wondering what current software coding and development method that is you know commonly used or touted do you see as leading to the most vulnerabilities within the worldwide digital ecosystem and why? Maybe waterfall or agile design thinking, lean startup. Personally, I've seen a lot of problems with misunderstanding with agile, but you know, what have you seen? To your point, I'd like to drive awareness because I think the methodology that we use is reflective of the organizational culture surrounding the mindset of quality being everyone's job, security being everyone's job, and the willingness to examine the life cycle for the most important remediations where security could 
actually be baked in. So if we look at it under the auspices of the CSSLP and our entire focus is on how to remediate or eradicate cybersecurity issues and challenges as early in the life cycle as possible, we would be driving much like quality right back to the beginning of the life cycle where we're looking at requirements. We're looking at the technological infrastructures and IDE environments that we're using. We're putting in place a defense in depth construct around how we are teaching, how we are training, how we are integrating, how we are testing and assuring and fielding and then supporting. So it's, I don't think it's one particular methodology that's at the root cause of the problem. I think what it is is that we, as quality and security diverged over time to be become siloed in some cases, we lost the lessons learned from the early 80s and the 90s and into the 2000s where we had a very strong focus on automation. We had strong overlays with regard to life cycles and methodologies and framework that measured where, when, how often, and how we could drive the cost down and the positive and successful results sets up. Yeah, you know, one of the things that struck me early in my career, and I I started, uh, I built that change control system on an IBM 370. You were talking about all the different types, you know, that that you've worked on. I'm very impressed um, with all of that uh, actual experience you have with that. But I started on a 370. We ported to a 390. Um, But at that time, after I got into security then, it seemed like when they the rest of the IT area had new software or they had updates, they would always come to the security like a week before, sometimes a day before they wanted to, to put their changes or their new systems into production and say, hey, can you give us the... Uh, the write-off on the security. (laughs) So to your point about getting it started as early as possible, it seemed like that took a long time to get people to do that, but now it's almost like we've come full circle again. And it's like, why aren't they doing that anymore? It took us a long time, right, Rhonda, to to get people to think about it early, and now it seems like we're right back to that same point we were at in many ways, in the late 1980s and early 1990s. So, Rebecca, I'd like to offer, I think we're learning, right? I think during that time, if, if we can bring our minds back to what was occurring then, it was a, a heightened focus on the use of automation at every single step of the life cycle. So we had intelligence that interrogated the requirements. We had intelligence that interrogated the design and development aspects. We had intelligence that basically we overlaid onto the assurance life cycle. We had intelligence that we used to collect field and service-related outages so that we can drive those changes back. In this day and age, I think we're seeing that now move to, as you alluded to earlier, in the intro is really through this whole focus on DevOps and DevSecOps. So again, we had the divergence of quality and security siloing either in their various work streams. And now I think we're seeing that a reconvergence and an understanding that if we have a security issue, that affects quality. If we have a quality issue that affects security. And by melding DevOps and the security piece, we really bring together the constructs of automation across the entire development lifecycle, as well as the continuous compliance aspect necessary for organizations to comply with differing control frameworks. That's very insightful and very excellent points. And I I want to get into something, too, that uh, kind of is also some evolution that we're seeing. Um, But right now, 
it's time for a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Uh, today, I'm speaking with Dr. Ron Farrell about secure software engineering and secure software change controls within the software lifecycle management. I'm your host, Rebecca Harrell, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about the show, as well as about show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through my PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com website. Please stay with us. We will be right back after these important messages from the sponsors. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. The Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs. Visit PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. I'm speaking today with Dr. Rhonda Farrell about secure software engineering and secure software change controls within the software development life cycle, something so important. And I'm wondering, Rhonda, you know, recently NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, they're a great source. I'm a huge fan of their work. Um, and to be transparent, I'm also, <laughs> they're one of my clients, but I just love doing work for them because they're all so, so smart. But anyway, they recently released the NIST Secure Software Development Framework, SSDF. So I'm wondering, what do you see as both the benefits and do you see any drawbacks or challenges to that? Well, I'd like to say that I really love the SSDF because it's a direct next step in organizing and promulgating the early work of build security in and the software assurance best practices and tools that are currently being maintained by U.S. CERT. It also builds off of the maturation activities of this integration of cybersecurity and privacy during the NIST 853 Rev5 control set and really driving clarity on for commercial world the and agent, civil agencies the cybersecurity framework so i love that they are reinforcing the focus on supply chain best practices that two of the other areas are really making the base case for the need for DevSecOps. And the prepare the org aspect is really looking at 
the change management readiness perspective of an organization to be able to take on and mature cybersecurity across the supply chain. So if we look at it from a change management, they're driving awareness. They're driving the desire to want to change by assessing the readiness level. They are examining the knowledge and ability of the organization and workforce to be able to take on the type of cybersecurity maturation work through look at the looking at the workforce and then they're reinforcing that through the integration with cybersecurity framework and other constructs you know if we look at where could we potentially offer suggestions for how we can make this better to our community is by looking, I think, at the last 10-plus years of maturation. And so we start with Klinger-Cohen. We start with information sharing and governance and the maturity of cybersecurity. We move into the integrated DOD and IC into the RMF so that we could stand up cloud computing, FedRAMP, reciprocity across security assurance, and then we then meld our performance excellence and our cybersecurity through Baldridge Cybersecurity Excellence Builder. And then we take the next step in maturing out our, our privacy and control frameworks by moving that to the next revision level. I think the SD, SSDF construct could benefit by pulling those additional pieces together and aligning and referencing and linking so that civil agencies, commercial entities, DOD and IC could all get and stand behind this and understand how it fits into their particular ecosystem. I, I, th- I agree with you. And in fact, just as an FYI, uh, NIST has a fairly new initiative called OLIR, O-L-I-R, O-L-I-R. And it, it is, um, you know, the purpose of it is to do mapping, such as what you're, you're describing. So that might be something for those listening uh, to check out OLIR. Just do a search on NIST and OLIR, and, and you might find it. And just one more quick thing for the listeners. If you're wondering what RMF stands for, that's the Risk Management Framework from NIST as well. Um, so, Rhonda, I want to go on to, uh, I have so many different questions for you, and we have a limited amount of time, but I did want to ask you about the president's executive order on improving the nation's cybersecurity. It was uh, EO number, executive order number 14028. It was issued May 12th of this year, 2021, and it required many different federal agencies, including NIST, to uh, perform a variety of initiatives to enhance cybersecurity and integrity of the software supply chain. You mentioned supply chain when you're just describing about how to incorporate, you know, bring those into this uh, software life cycle. In fact, section four of the EO uh, executive order directed NIST to actually get input from the private sector and from academia and government agencies um, to find out what they thought were best practices and guidelines. And they did include, as you mentioned, you know, criteria to evaluate software security and to criteria to evaluate security practices of developers, including developers at the suppliers themselves. So what would you recommend as changes uh, kind of related to this EO, if like if you were answering the EO, what would you suggest to improve upon the NIST SSDF uh, to help meet these EO requirements? Well, I think we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think we had so much good work go into build security in to the software assurance that's now being promulgated, again, maintained through U.S. CERT, but also 
integrated into making security measurable, which is a MITRE initiative. If we look at the core aspects of, of that, it is cybersecurity and supply chain risk management. It's software assurance. It's application security. It's system assessments. It's cyber intelligence, threat analysis, cyber threat information sharing, all of which are seminal to the ability to harness the ecosystem findings so that commercial, civil, federal government agencies can respond either through manufacturing and creating stronger products and or putting defense in depth protections in place and or adjustment of policies given the ecosystem findings. I also think it really, again, is an enabler for the maturation and build-out of DevSecOps infrastructures. If we look at the rate of change, if we look at the assessment of development SDLC organizations, if we look at the measurement of the capability set that they bring to strengthen cybersecurity outcomes and results. I think we're ultimately going to have to move back to the place where we're as fully automated as possible, and that means actually more opportunity, more opportunity for the vendors, more opportunity for the agencies to harness the technologies, more opportunities for our federal government and civil partners and commercial partners around machine learning, AI, and supporting business processes to support the pace and rate of change that will be unfolding going forward. I think, again, what I wasn't seeing was, again, that what was the mechanism they were going to use to measure the advancement of both the organization and the outcomes, and I wasn't seeing a tie-in to ISO IEC 27000 series, which is really a standards body being implemented to assess and audit organizations offering cybersecurity lifecycle services, as well as having specialized industry sector knowledge that could be harnessed and utilized both within the NIST cybersecurity framework, the SSDF, and potentially future versions of the control framework itself. Yes, very good points. I mean, automating as much as possible would be fabulous. It would help to address some of the, you know, most common types of problems and that industry input. But even with automation, um, problems can still, you know, come along because of administrative human and operational vulnerabilities. In fact, I learned this way back in the early 1990s when I created that change control system because management would log into their desktop uh, and they would leave their desktop logged into the approval um, site uh, page for programmers who wanted to get approval to move their code from, you know, development to test and so that that defeated the whole uh, testing process when the the developers the programmers could approve of their own code without having the the required review Um, what are some ways that you've seen in which uh, software needs to be engineered to help prevent you know those human interactions Maybe it's, uh, you know, intent to get around controls or to prevent them from having errors or even lack of awareness that ultimately can cause security incidents and privacy breaches. What, what do our programmers need to understand about the need to address the human factor and the operational and administrative vulnerabilities? 
And that's a wonderful question. And I think, you know, immediately we go to the place of development and we go to the place of SDLC. But in actuality, it's, again, it's a cultural mindset issue, right? So I think it's really identifying, to your point, if we know we have these core risks and we're going to have to put in different defense in depth mechanisms to support that. That's why I think cyber awareness, cyber training, cyber education, watch the watchers, the focus on ensuring that we have external entities that are actually trying ethical hacking, um, different services that are enabling that executive leadership in that organization to understand where are they at risk, how often at they are, are they at risk, and what is going to be potentially the monetary disrupt or operational disruptions that's going to occur because of that. It's very hard for one person to change a cultural mindset, but if you can use it, if you can instill a cultural change of let's put in place this defense in depth to watch the watcher. How do we protect audit logs? How do we protect and separate and make sure we have operational controls around dev integration and production? How are we from a policy and a compliance standpoint, ensuring that we're collecting and analyzing data at the point where some of these issues and challenges are arising. How can we put in place technical controls that implement policy so that they can't leave their workstations unlocked, that there's an automated way to be able to do this? How do we look at our security architecture and integrate it in such a way so that we're collecting access issues, we're collecting operational issues, we're putting in place content filtering and firewall and other IDS, IPS-like security architecture components so that we can automatically respond and aren't necessarily so dependent on a human element. And then I think the log correlation and the security analytics, and again, melded with ML and AI, really allows an organization to be able to be made knowledgeable in the real time when insider threat and or external threat activities are occurring. Yeah, and what strikes me about what you just described too, you you described very eloquently the the technical means, but also you all described how the humans needed to be involved. So that really makes you know policies and procedures, having those in place and actually following them, very important. I've seen so many organizations that. They create policies and procedures, but then it seems like nobody follows them. They're like, oh, well, we created these because compliance said we had to, but, uh, you know, we know what we're doing. And it's like, wait a second, if you're not following your own policies and procedures, it's a disaster waiting to happen. Um, and, and then that leads to other things, too, as I think, you know, some of your statements implied, physical vulnerabilities, which are also, of course, related to the humans, but you know, just physical access to servers, to you know, the workstations, what are some ways in which your software needs to be secured against the physical threats that could introduce uh, security vulnerabilities within the software that programmers need to think about? And I think this is really where EO14028 and the SSDF is going, right? It's really that space of supply chain risk management, which is what they focus on. So how do we ensure that there's not counterfeit hardware, firmware, software, malware integrated? How do we ensure that such 
that tamper has not occurred, that taint has not occurred, that we put it in place, trusted computing bases, and we're monitoring and we're tracking and auditing. I think, again, it's, it's a defense in depth through the integration of trusted components, both across the supply chain life cycle itself mm-hmm. as components and software are being integrated or passed vendor to vendor and to ensure that there's a a strong chain of custody and sample testing or other more in-depth assurances being made as we are integrating our solutions across the life cycle. Yes. Now, I'm sorry, but I I completely lost track of time here. We're almost at the end, and I know I want you to to tell about your initiative uh, with education. Uh, we have in about one one minute time, if you will. Um, so I think I, I maybe we have a little bit more time, but yeah, can you tell us? What is your main uh, point that you want to leave us with today and um, talk about some of your uh, educational initiatives in a a couple of minutes or so? Thank you so much. So I think the, the main point I'd like to leave us with today, Rebecca, is that we are stronger together. As cybersecurity really is everyone's job. It's about, it affects the automobiles we drive, the homes we live in, the roads we drive on, the banking and investment platforms we harness. It's embedded in wearables for our youths and our pets and even our elderlies. It's across our cities, across our organizations. And so, I think we need to make a concerted effort under the auspices of partnering federal government, state governing, government, civil agencies, commercial entities, our communities about raising the awareness and the training levels across the board. So we have youth who are now through CSTGIA partners, are focused on youth in pre-kindergartners, all the way through post-executive give-back. We want to make sure that they have an opportunity to, one, understand the STEM and cyber-related components that are being manufactured and fielded in today's world. We're offering workshops. They're offering curriculums. They're offering – I have one – junior high school now freshman who has started up her own nonprofit to be able to teach STEM-related constructs to other middle-aged school young ladies so that they can learn from their peer, that they can learn what are the best practices, so they can see this as a viable career path. We need to unsilo security from all of the various aspects of our life and integrate it. If mm-hmm. I think the, the executive order has an SD, SSDF is focused on how do we label IoT technologies, right? So mm-hmm. much to drive awareness and thus training and to allow our communities and our companies to then serve the vast populations, we need to be helping them understand what are the risks. We need to be able to put in place support constructs for them. We need to create cyber champions at all of those levels, and we need to make sure that We are exchanging threat and threat intelligence wisely and as widely as possible to ensure that we can remediate but not to then create more threats. I think the youth of today are the just a wonderful recipient of a global effort at advocacy championship to make sure they have a workshops, to make sure they're getting hands-on, to make sure they have curriculums, to make sure that they have mentoring. So I would ask that the, the world just keep, keep going in these areas, right? Keep going. You yourself, if you have 
knowledge and experience in cyber and STEM and privacy reach to a community group, reach to an elderly group, reach to a youth group, support a a, an apprenticeship program, support a scholarship for a workshop or a course, or help that budding, nascent entrepreneur start their organization so that they can take and help mature cyber to the next level that's possible. Yes. Well, tell people how to get to your site, your CSTGIA site, because I think that's they, they could get so much out of there. That's a good starting point for them. Thank you, Rebecca. That's a www.cstgia.org, and they can reach to me at founder at cstgia.org. There's 50-plus partners, again, focused on the ecosystem of pre-kindergarten through post-executive giveback. They're sure to be an organization that's focused on an area that our leaders and our SMEs have in their heart to support. And I'm sure if they go out to that site, um, they'll probably find a lot of resources there as well, Uh that they can use to, you know, inform them more and even point them in a good direction, right? Exactly. Our partners have a plethora of research. They have a plethora of curriculum. They have a plethora of supporting materials across those populations to serve everyone we've spoken about earlier today. Well, thank you so much, um, Dr. Rhonda Farrell. You are a great role model, and I applaud you for all that you do because I know you spend a lot of your personal time uh, providing all of these benefits to others to get them involved. So thank you for that, and thank you for being on my show today. Bless you, Rebecca Harold. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm so hoping the global community will take action and support our cybersecurity initiatives going forward. Yes. Today, I've been speaking with Dr. Rhonda Farrell about secure software engineering and secure software change controls within software lifecycle management and also about um, her site at the cstgia.org site. Um, so I will put that link in the information on my show so you can go out there and see how to get directly to Dr. Rhonda Farrell as well. Please send feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? Just let me know. Do you have a topic to suggest I cover? Well, get in touch with me using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. And if you can't make our scheduled debut show the first Saturday of each month, you will always be able to listen to the recordings whenever you want to until our next show. Ask those you do business with, who you work for, uh, who ask for your data. Ask them if they are doing all the they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. And if you're interested in security as a career, knowing more about it, go out to Dr. Rhonda Farrell's website and you'll learn a lot. I know you will. Be privacy aware in the month ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe.